You're listening to audio from Mercy Hill Church of Port Austin. To learn more about us, you can visit mercyhillpa.org. The older I get, the more frustrated I become with entropy and thermodynamics. Now, when I first typed that sentence out, I started laughing in my office because I'm like, in seminary, they told us to use an attention grabber um, at the beginning. And I'm like, I'm pretty sure entropy and thermodynamics isn't going to capture anyone's attention. Um, but then I started laughing again. Oh, hey, okay. Um, yeah, I forgot. Okay. But then I started laughing again because I'm like, actually, if I talk about the fact that it won't capture your attention, maybe it will. And then, wow, wasn't that clever? Look, you're all watching. Okay, I gotcha. All right. But anyways, back to my frustration with entropy and thermodynamics. That wasn't just random. Okay. It's the idea that things, in summary, to simplify it really easily for us, that things move from a state of order to disorder. And I love it when when science, and I love it when psychology and things like that, catches up with the Bible. Like, we know um, that the reason that happens is because we're in a post-fall world, that things aren't acting the way they ought to act um, because of sin, because we rebelled. To give you an example, when you put an extension cord in the closet, it's perfectly coiled. Nobody touches it. You go back a few days later, and it's in like 30 knots. You're like, what happened, right? Um, You organize your fridge perfectly, and and a few days go by, and it's chaos, um, at least for me. I just, I I get my lunch meat and cheese out, and I just chuck it back in the fridge. I don't, I don't, I'm really, I'm really organized with stuff with the fridge, man. I just, ah, just chuck it back in there, and then, and then I get freaked out, and I have to organize it again. But, but you know what I mean, whether it's your laundry room, or your car, um, or your diet, or whatever it is in your life, it seems like it just seems to drift into chaos. It seems to drift into disorder. And, and obviously, there's a reason for that. It's the fall, like we just said. And so in light of that, obviously, like I said, the older I get, the more I experience that in different areas of my life and the more frustrated I am with it. But it also can, by the way, help us to have the right expectations. We're in a fallen world. Okay, so you're a broken, if you're married, you're a broken sinner. And guess what? You're married to a broken sinner. So there's going to be a little bit of brokenness there, right? It helps with expectations, and there's grace to fill in. But, but it's also one of those things that we have to realize in a fallen world, if it's important to you, you've got to keep an eye on it, right? It's not just going to drift to good stuff, right? The marriages that you look up to, that you see, man, that is a beautiful picture of the gospel. They didn't just drift there. That took work. That took effort. That took sacrifice, Right? The, the things that we look at and we admire in this life, they didn't just drift there. There was work there. There was perseverance. There was effort. There was discipline. There was fighting against the thorns and the thistles of this world. And that's really one of the messages all throughout the book of Hebrews is that you've got to pay attention to your faith. Because like anything in life, it's so easy for us to drift away. And this congregation, from outward pressure, from inward pressure, from things going on, they were starting to drift away from Jesus. They were starting to look at other things and wonder, should we just go back to Judaism maybe? Is this worth it to stick after it? And and over and over in the book, he's going to say, persevere. Jesus is greater. Keep holding on to Jesus. Keep believing. Keep trusting. Don't drift away. We saw that right away in Hebrews 2. He said, we must pay closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. We saw it last week when he said, guys, you need to grow up. You need to learn. You need to teach. You need to mature. You need to to discern. And the reason he gave that really strong challenge, someone on the way out last week said that was a spanking. And I was like, oh, okay. I mean, that's just how the word works sometimes, isn't it? But the reason that was given is because of this passage today, which I'm just going to warn you is one of the hardest passages in the book. It's one of the most direct and challenging passages in the book. And 
Shannon is always like, don't tell people this, but I'm just going to tell you. It's also, it's also one of the most controversial passages in, in the entire Bible, okay? So that's going to be fun. But, but it's this idea that there can, there can be a drift that starts to take place. And, and obviously, I know you're, you're probably thinking theologically and all this stuff, and don't worry, we're going to get to those questions in your mind. But there's this drift that can take place that can actually, if left unchecked, lead to apostasy, which means you're abandoning the faith. You drift away altogether where you no longer believe, you no longer participate in the people of God, you no longer trust in Jesus, you've abandoned the faith. And it's terrifying. And as much as I want to like make a joke right now to take away the, the terror of it, it's not funny. It's terrifying. And so I pray that as we walk through this, we'll hear it, we'll hear this warning and we'll, we'll apply it and the Spirit will apply it in ways that even I can't. But as I looked at this, I saw a warning an illustration, an encouragement, and a conclusion. And so the first thing I want to look at is a fearful warning. A fearful warning in verse 4. It says this, For it is impossible. That's partly why it's terrifying. What's impossible? It is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance. Since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. So understanding this passage really hinges on who is he talking about here. Okay, he describes this group of people that have five characteristics. One, they've been enlightened. Two, they've tasted the heavenly gift. Three, they've shared in the Holy Spirit, for they've tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. But then five, they've fallen away. And in the case of these five characteristics, people with these characteristics, it's impossible to restore them again to repentance. That's terrifying. Why? Because they're once again crucifying the Son of God, it says, to their own harm, holding him up to contempt. In other words, they're joining that crowd. If, if you remember the story in the Gospels where there's this crowd and, and he says, do you want Barabbas, this murderer, this one who led this insurrection, or do you want Jesus to be released to you? And they say, give us Barabbas and crucify him. And they're mocking him and they're yelling, crucify him, this perfect, spotless Son of God. And what he's saying here is he's saying, when you leave the faith, when you abandon Jesus, you're joining that crowd. And you're crucifying the Son of God once again, holding him up to contempt, mocking him. See, crucifixion wasn't just about pain. It was excruciating pain. The Romans um, had it down to a science. It was one of the most painful things you could ever imagine physically. But it wasn't just about that. It was about humiliation. They would most of the time string you up naked in front of people you knew. And nail you to that cross. And so there's a, there's a contempt here. There's, there's something that you're, you're joining this crowd that said crucify him and then watched him get nailed to that cross. But who are these people? Who is he talking about? Well, there's a lot of answers to this question, as you can guess, since I just told you it's very controversial. But let me give you kind of two ends of the spectrum. There's things in between, but there's two ends of the spectrum. One group says these people are genuine Christians who walk away from Jesus, lose their salvation, and perish forever. That's one answer to the question that, that you can actually, if you read this, it's talking about Christians and they, they literally lose their salvation and go to hell. That's what it's talking about. And then on the other end of the spectrum, it's, it's people who say that these are people who appear to be genuine Christians, 
will walk away from Jesus and thus show they were never truly saved in the first place. I, I kind of showed my cards earlier in the service with the songs that we chose and, and the celebration that I was having. But, but I, just, I do want us to walk through these characteristics and see why there is a tension. It's easy for us to take our theology, our theological view, and then press it into a text and not let the text actually weigh on us. We're text-driven. We're expository. So it doesn't matter what our confession of faith says if it doesn't line up with the Bible. It doesn't matter what I preach about if it doesn't line up with the Bible. And so let's walk through this, this and say, what does this mean? What does this text mean? Because this is terrifying if we don't get this right. What does it mean? Well, first of all, they've been enlightened. What does that mean? Well, this has the idea of coming to understand something through illumination and kind of sounds like what happens when we become Christians. We were dead. We came to life. We were in darkness and now we're light. He said, let there be light and light shine in our hearts. In fact, in Hebrews the same author in chapter 10 refers to Christians as those who have been enlightened. Hebrews 10, 32. So it sounds like he's talking about Christians there. I don't know. Number two, they tasted the heavenly gift. What does that mean? This heavenly gift seems to refer to the gift of salvation offered to those who will repent and believe. Now, you may hear that and say, okay, so they just tasted it, right? Like they just nibbled on it. <laughs> they didn't fully ingest it into themselves. But Hebrews 2.9 says Jesus tasted death for everybody. Did Jesus just sip on death? No way. He fully experienced it. He drained the cup right down to the dregs. So again, this sounds like Christians. Third, these people shared in the Holy Spirit. Again, sharing here could have the idea of maybe a partial partaking, not a full experience. But again... In 3.1, believers are described as those who share in a heavenly calling. And in 3.14, those who share in Christ. So again, it really sounds like Christians here. Number four, these people tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. This seems to closely parallel chapter 2 where the author says believers experienced the word of God and even saw signs and wonders and various miracles. That's 2.4. That bore witness to the powers of the age to come. So again, this sounds like it could be referring to Christians. And then number five, he says, lastly, these people have fallen away. Well, this throws a wrench into everything we just said. <laughs> because one through four sounded like Christians, and this sounds like, according to our theology, not Christians. Christians can't lose their salvation, right? That's a, a doctrine we believe. Now, I read it through like that, and I explained it like that to show you the dilemma, to show you there's hard passages like this in the Bible, and they're for our good. And we don't just gloss over them and, and just make it sound easy with our theology. We actually have to wrestle with it. What is going on here? And I'm encouraged because the Apostle Peter in his epistle says there's some things that are hard to understand in Paul's writings. And I love that because I'm like, if Peter struggled with it, then like we, we're going to struggle with it a little bit. But what is going on here? Take it at face value. It seems to indicate that Christians can lose their salvation, which is why some interpret it this way. But let me tell you what I think is going on here. After studying it a lot, there's, I literally have a book in my library, four views on the warning passages of Hebrews. <laughs> and so like, there's tons of debate on this, and, and I studied it a lot. Um, but let me tell you what I believe is going on here. But I wanted to leave that tension on you for you to, to deal with this and wrestle with it yourself. But, but I, leave, I believe there's two purposes for this passage. And really, one is kind of for believers, and one is for unbelievers. But first of all, I believe that this is the means that God uses to keep genuine believers saved. What do I mean by that? Well, remember, Christianity is both a position and a destination. We're saved, but we're also being saved. 
We're seated in heavenly places right now, but we're also on the path to glory. And so God uses means to keep us saved. And sometimes we, we separate so much the spiritual and the physical that we think God is, is using this supernatural force that you can't put your finger on to keep us Christians. And, and, and certainly that's true. The Holy Spirit has sealed us to the day of redemption. He, he has saved us with his power. But he uses ordinary means. He uses the Bible. How weird is it that we come into a place and a guy takes up a book. This is over 2,000 years old. And explains it to us, and we apply it, and then we leave. Like, how strange is that? And yet the Bible says that this is supernatural what's happening right now. That this is one of the means he uses, the Word of God, the preaching of the Word of God, to keep you saved. To keep you a Christian, to keep you on the path. How weird is it that we make a big deal out of Christian fellowship, out of encouraging one another, and, and bearing one another's burdens? But that's part of the Christian faith. And so what's happening here is God is using this warning passage as one of the means... By which he's going to keep his chosen ones saved. Okay, that's what he's doing here. Think of it like a cattle prod. Okay, so the cattle's kind of getting off and he uses that cattle prod. That doesn't feel good, right? That's sharp, but it gets them back on the path. And so here's the idea that if a true believer in this room hears this warning, it'll actually be used of God to say, I don't want that to become me. I'm going to keep going to church. I'm going to keep reading my Bible. I'm going to keep trusting in Jesus alone for salvation. I'm going to keep pressing in to fellowship with other believers because I, I can't get isolated on my own and try to do this on my own. I'm going to persevere. That's what's going to happen. And by the way, it's going to happen if you're a believer. But, but for believers, it's used to keep you clinging to Jesus, to keep you believing, to keep you persevering. But it's also, I believe, used as a stern warning for those who consider themselves Christians they actually think that they're Christians, but they're not true believers. And I think those characteristics were so vague. They were so difficult. Like, could this be a Christian or not? I don't know. And the reason for that is because that's how serious it is. That's how much they look like a Christian in the gathering. To where it could be applied to believers, but it could also be applied to unbelievers. And so those who think that they're Christians and they're just hanging out with Christians and, and they come and they hear the word of God preached and they've never truly been born again. They've never had any affection in their hearts for Jesus. That They've never been marked by the fruit of the spirit. Instead, they're marked by the fruit of self-interest. It's, it's those group of people that hear this and hopefully are stirred to actually put their faith in Jesus. There's some wilderness parallels going on here. What do I mean by that? The children of Israel in the wilderness, um, they were enlightened. They had the law. They had, they had the covenant that was given to them by Moses. They tasted of the heavenly gift. I think that's referring to the manna in the wilderness. They, they tasted it. That was a gift given directly to them from God. Right? They, they shared in the working of the Holy Spirit. Not, not the way that believers do today, but the, they saw the Spirit working. I mean, parting the Red Sea. They saw the miracles. They saw the goodness of the word of God, the powers of the age to come. And yet there was a whole bunch of people in the Israelite nation that weren't truly believers. It was a mixed community. And I think what the author is doing here is he's pulling on that and he's saying, you should check yourself. Don't just think, well, I prayed a prayer once. I, I believe, so I'm good. No, no, no. Check yourself because people that really look like Christians, like actually, if you walk through this, it sounds like Christians might not actually be Christians. And believers should actually hear this and say, I don't want, by God's grace, I'm not going to let that become me. <coughs> Ardell Cain Day puts it bluntly when he says this, the preacher intends for his warning to alarm us, to heed to his appeal, 
by remaining steadfastly loyal to Jesus. This means we believers should wholeheartedly affirm the following sentence. If I, who look to Christ alone for salvation, forsake him, I will find myself incapable of repenting such that I'll most assuredly perish forever. That's how serious this is supposed to weigh on us. And for those who truly believe, you're going to hear this warning and you're going to cling to Jesus and it's going to do its job. The warning passages are the, the, the means that God uses to keep his people believing in Jesus. It's, it's really fascinating. Now, if your mind is like all over the place, stay for table talk. What a great week to stay for table talk. And Shannon's like, it's my birthday. Uh, I'm leaving, right? I don't want to talk about that at table talk. But it's a great, great passage. It's, it just shows for me the wisdom of God. That, that he, would, he would work in such a powerful way to both warn the believer to stay clinging to Jesus, but also stir the unbeliever that you've got all the marks, you look like it, but you're not truly a believer. And so repent and believe. I'm sure you'll have questions about this, like I said, but we've got to move on to the next point. And so that was the fearful warning. Let's look next at the vivid illustration Vivid illustration. I added a little describer of each point this time. I don't, I don't know if it works or not, but I liked it. All right, pick it up in verse 7. This is going to kind of help us, I think, shine some light on what we just saw. He says this, For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. So here the author paints two pictures for us. The first is this land that receives rain from heaven and produces a bountiful crop for the farmer, and it's a true blessing from God. But the other is the, is the land next to this land, and they receive the same amount of rain. They both receive the blessing from heaven. They both receive rain, and yet this land, for some reason or another, produces thorns and thistles. It's useless to the farmer, and like weeds, it gets tossed into the fire. Do you see what he's doing here? He's using this illustration to show that in most Christian congregations... There are two kinds of people. And if it's a faithful church that preaches the word of God, both groups of people in the congregation get the blessing from heaven. They get preaching. They get worship. They get Christian fellowship. They get the blessings from heaven. But some start to produce fruit in their life. Like that field that received the rain and fruit was cultivated and you could see a change in their life. That They had love for God. They had love for others. They had a passion to share the gospel. They had growth and discernment like we saw last week. They had love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. The fruit of the Spirit that, that was starting to happen in their life because of the heavenly blessings coming down on them and, and, and being cultivated in their life. But there's other people in the congregation that are like that other field. They come and they hear the preaching. They're part of the worship. They see lives being changed. They, they see God working. They experience the joys of Christian fellowship. They, they experience it just like the believer. They get the blessings. But there's no fruit. In fact, there's thorns and thistles. And the group that produced fruit received a blessing from God, but the group that produced thorns and thistles is thrown into the fire. The application is really obvious here. Is there any fruit in your life? Because obviously after that really vague description of who he's talking about, like that sounds like a believer. What is going on? He goes, I'm sure this group is like, is this me? Which is good. Like they should ask that question. And by the way, again, we shouldn't say, look around and say, I wonder if that person's a Christian. No, no, no. 
Like, pick up the mirror and say, is this, is this me that maybe is drifting from Jesus? And he says, well, well, here's one way you can know. Is there any fruit in your life at all? Is there any evidence of God's grace in your life at all? Or are you like that field that receives the blessing, but there's no fruit? Are you marked by a love for God or a love for self? Are you marked by worshiping God or your pet idol? Are you marked by joy and peace or by bitterness and resentment? The Apostle Paul makes it quite clear in Galatians when he says this, Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality. We all, we all like to hammer on that one, but let's keep reading. Impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. He's like, if you didn't hear yours on that list, it's on the list. <laughs> things like these are the works of the flesh. And listen to this. He says, I warned you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And we do not talk about this in America. We don't. We just, hey, you're part of the club. You, you sign the card, cool. You pray to prayer, awesome. Your life is full of the works of the flesh. But you're going to heaven because you signed your name on a card. I warned you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things, those who have those things as a marked evidence, a description, patterns in their life, will not inherit the kingdom of God. That terrifies me. Then he goes on, but the fruit of the Spirit... You see it in the hallway every time you walk out. That's why we picked that sign. It's a great one. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Now, again, this is not perfection. We are not teaching perfectionism here. A lot of times, it's, it's a stumbling forward, right? I've illustrated, I got this from another preacher, but he said, when your kid, when they just got to that age where they're starting to walk, right, and they take a step and they're kind of bobbly and, and you're like clapping and cheering and getting the phone out, right? You wouldn't be like, oh, when they fall, you wouldn't be like, are you serious, kid? Get back up, right? Like you would, no, you'd be happy. They took a step. A lot of times, that's what it looks like in the Christian life. It's a stumbling forward, but it's forward. Sometimes it's, Honestly, two steps forward, one step back, two steps forward. Remember my analogy the other week, right? It's, it's not always linear, so don't get this twisted, but there ought to be some evidence that God has changed your life. We were dead in our sins, and we were raised to life. Dead people that come to life, there's a change there, right? If God's Holy Spirit, God, the infinite maker of all things, if God's Holy Spirit indwells us who believe, don't you think there'd be a change we don't talk about this today. We need to talk about it because there's so many people that I think have checked the box of Christianity and there's no change in their life. And so this passage is meant to warn us to check ourselves, to make sure we're producing fruit in our life. Not us, but the Spirit is producing fruit in our life. This has been pretty harsh. But I love in verse 9, we're not going to get, well, we are going to get there next, actually. He says, though we speak to this way, in your case, beloved. I heard a message on this um, the other day by John Piper, and he said, it's interesting that after this really harsh warning, he calls them beloved. And that just means that they're loved. And yet we're in a culture today where when you say things like that, you're not loving. And yet how, like, how twisted is that logic? 
Like, hey, there's a bridge out ahead and you're about to go over the bridge and die. But I don't want to offend you. You know, I know you're on this road, so <laughs> go ahead. You do you. I'll do me. You know, I don't want to offend. What are we doing? We need to have a culture in our church where we're humble enough to, to hear this warning from one another. And, and, and we're bold enough to get over ourselves and actually warn our brothers and sisters. Hey, I love you enough to say that, man, the way that that situation went out, I just, I don't know about that. I, I feel like you should, we should talk about that and, and, and actually address the hard things, which is one of my jobs as a pastor. And I hate it. I absolutely hate doing it. <laughs> I do not want to tell someone, well, the way you acted wasn't really spirit-filled the other day. Like that, right? I just get labeled immediately. Oh, you're holier than us. Oh, okay. No, like I'm trying to help you. And I want you to do the same. And I've opened my life up to allow that to happen. Josh can do it. And Shannon certainly can do it. She can, <laughs> right? I mean, she can tell me off and she needs to. And, and, and I need to be humble and repentant and actually hear that and actually change. But man, we need to have, we need to have a culture where this is allowed. Okay, we, we just need to be humble. We need to be vulnerable. We need to be transparent. There's no swagger in here. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. We're all bankrupt sinners. What did you bring to your salvation? The sin that made it necessary. <laughs> That's all. Right. You didn't bring anything else. So let's just be humble, right? Let's be humble and let's love one another and let's persevere together. I know this was harsh. And some of you are like, why did I even come today? Again, Shane's like, this is my birthday. I wish I was in nursery, okay? But let's look at number three, the, the warm encouragement. It's so warm, and I love this. I, I love this because, because this, this pastor here, he shows such pastoral heart for this people that he just nails them in, here, in this verse. And then he comes and he says, but, but beloved, come here, I, beloved, I got some encouragement for you. And I love this in verse nine. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. Things that belong to salvation. And by the way, I, we're small enough of a church that I know many of you personally, and I've actually, those of you who are members, I've actually put you through this vetting process. To, I've asked you, hey, what evidence of God's spirit is in your life? Like, just tell me how God's changed you. And, and I ask that for a reason, because now I can say this to you. From my, from my perspective, I'm just a human. I can't see your heart, but, but man, I, I feel sure of better things which is why church membership is so important. But he, but he says this, we speak in this way, we speak very harshly, but in your case, beloved, we're, we're feeling sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. Why? For God is not unjust, so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. So here the author, again, shows his pastoral heart and models warmth and love for his congregation. They need to hear the warning that he just gave. And by the way, if you have a loved one in your life who claims to be a Christian, but there's no affection for Jesus in their life at all, they, don't, they aren't part of the church, they aren't reading their Bible, there's been no change at all, have the boldness to lovingly just read this passage to them. Say, man, I just, I just felt convicted by the Spirit today that I need to warn you. You may be, I don't know, I can't see your heart, I hope this isn't true, but you may be on a path to destruction. But here he's saying, you know, I can't see your hearts. I don't honestly know, but I, I feel sure of better things for you. Why? Because I'm seeing some of the fruit that we just talked about. That land that produced the fruit, I'm seeing some of that in your life. Right? He's saying, I'm seeing your love for God and others. I'm seeing your service for the saints. I'm seeing that stuff, and it, and it makes me encouraged that there's been a change in your life. <coughs> he sees, but you know what I loved about this? More important than this guy seeing he says, God sees it. Isn't that awesome? 
says God is not unjust to overlook it. He sees it. He sees it. God is just. He sees your work. He sees your love. He sees your service. He doesn't overlook it. He won't forget it. Any of you who've ever worked for someone who is really bad at acknowledging you and what you were able to kind of bring to the table, you know that was tough. Like you, you loved it when your boss finally saw after like hours and hours of work and effort and, and discipline that, man, he actually recognized it. Like my boss actually saw that I did this job and I did it well. You also know the pain of when they don't see it, when they overlook you, when they give the, the, the raise to someone else because he was more of a, a, well, we don't use the labels, right? But maybe he got in close with the boss, you know, played golf with him or whatever. But, you know, you hate it when you get overlooked. Can I just remind you that God doesn't overlook things? He sees it all, which normally we use that to kind of scare us, right? God sees what you're doing, right? Which is true. But man, what an encouragement. He sees it when you sign up to clean the church. He sees it. He sees it when you sacrificially give. He sees it when you bless others. He sees it when you reach out to someone just to encourage them. No one else knows except that person. He sees it. He sees it when you're bearing burdens, when you're suffering, and you're faithfully enduring. God sees it. Next time you're in the pain, I want you to remember, God sees this. He sees me. I don't feel seen by others right now, but God sees me. He sees it. This is so encouraging because there's so much of ministry that is behind the scenes, right? Bearing burdens and struggles and sorrows and most people will not see most of what goes on behind the scenes in this church. But God sees it. When no one else sees, God sees. The love and the work that you've shown for his name are good indicators that he's at work in your life. So take encouragement, a warm encouragement, and finally, a hopeful conclusion. Number four, a hopeful conclusion. Verse 11 says this, And we desire each one of you, to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Here the author wraps up his warning section with this nice summary, with this goal. He's saying, this is what I want. I want you to resolve in your hearts that you're going to persevere in the faith. I want you to just decide that you're going to persevere in the faith. I don't want you to be sluggish. You know what's interesting? This points us back to 511. Remember I told you this guy was a rhetorical genius, right? It was the spirit who's working, but he's just really good writer. So in 511, he calls them dull or lazy in their learning. And here he brings the word sluggish to indicate that this is an inclusio section. Now he's going back to Melchizedek in a minute. It's just really cool. But he's saying to them, listen, I want you to persevere in earnestness. That's sincere and intense conviction. And discipline and hope, confident expectation that God's going to do what he said he's going to do. Patience. Man, we are in a microwave Instagram culture, are we not? Everything's got to be now. But man, part of the Christian life is waiting. And that's hard. But the way we wait, he says, is remember those before us who had to wait. And how long did Abraham wait? We're going to look at that next. How long did he wait for God's promises to be fulfilled? And didn't even see a lot of them in his lifetime. And so we wait with patience, we persevere. And in verse 12, the author mentions that imitating others is one of the ways that we can do this. So we can look at the long line of faithful saints who persevered and, and see how they did it. And who's the ultimate one? Who's the ultimate one that persevered? Jesus Christ. 
Remember what we said in chapter two, we persevere as Christians by fixing our eyes on Jesus, on that lonely path to glory, all by himself, taking those steps for the joy that was before him, endured the cross for us. So just keep your eyes on Jesus and keep taking steps forward. Persevere in earnestness and discipline and faith and in patience. So today we saw this fearful warning, this vivid illustration, this warm encouragement, and this hopeful conclusion. And all of this is meant to lead this readers to this one resolution. And I put it in just one simple word for you today. Persevere. Persevere. That's a, that's a key theme all throughout the book of the Hebrews. In fact, one of the main themes. Persevere. Don't fall away. Don't drift. Persevere in the faith. Cling to Jesus. Keep believing. Keep learning. Keep growing. Keep following. Keep loving. Keep pursuing. Keep holding on to Jesus, knowing that he's holding on to you. Persevere. We need to hear that today. It looks like, I don't want to be a Debbie Downer, but it looks like things aren't going in a trajectory that are helpful for us as Christians in our culture. But you know what we do? We look to Jesus and we persevere. We persevere. And we know that at the end of that path, when we see his face, it's all going to be worth it. Peter says this light momentary trial, right? It's, it's, it's a small glimpse in light of the glory that's going to be revealed to us. And so we persevere. We persevere. We, we keep believing Jesus. We keep holding on to Jesus. And we know that he's holding on to us.